All right, Christ Community Church, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We are going to pick up in verse 18 this morning and work through verse 23. Now, while you're turning your way there in your Bibles, I'd like to remind you of where we've been so far in this series, because this text flows immediately from Romans 1, 16 through 17, not just because it's the next verses, but the ideas are closely connected, and we need to remember that as we approach this text. Remember that Paul has explained to us just this past week that he is unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all, without distinction, Jew and Gentile, everybody who believes in Christ. The only distinction that matters, as Paul explains, is whether you are in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, by faith alone. And now Paul is going to pivot to this text this morning and then explain, well, why is the gospel necessary? Why do we need God's power to be at work through the gospel in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace, grace alone to save us? Why do we need Jesus? And as we're going to see from Romans 1.18 and all the way through Romans chapter 3, Paul is going to make one argument that everybody, Jew and Gentile, we are all united in being sinful and separated from God without Christ. Everyone needs Jesus, Paul is saying. And he's going to start here in Romans 1 in talking to the Gentiles in particular. And remember that the Gentiles, that's a broad category. It refers to everybody of all races and ethnicities who is not a Jew. So that would include most of us. And Paul is going to point out that this then is true for the majority of humanity and the way we are united in our sinfulness. But he will also point out as he goes that it was also the same for the Jews. And that as the Gentiles and the Jews may have judged one another for things that they deemed immoral, Paul is saying, you guys are actually united in that. The very thing that you judge in one another is the first basis of your unity. It's your need for Jesus because of your sin. And so the key truth that we're going to see this morning is that we are deserving of God's wrath and need Jesus because we suppress the truth and we try to replace God with our own wisdom and worship. So let's see that in God's word this morning. This is Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now as we begin, the, the, the concept that's going to jump right off the, the page for most of us is God's wrath. And we want to start with, with a very important question, and the question is this. What is the opposite of God's wrath? What is the opposite of God's wrath? For most of us, our reaction is probably to say something along the lines of, well, God's love. But that's not true, in fact. The opposite of God's wrath is our apathy, 
are indifference to sin and to evil and to rebellion against God. There are no opposites in God. To speak of God's wrath opposed to God's love would be to introduce contradiction and change in God. But we know from Scripture there is no change in God. There is no opposite in God. We may, from our perspective, talk about different aspects of His character, His justice, His holiness, His love, but those are not oppositions or contradictions in who God is. He is one. In Him there is no shadow of change. Listen to how John Stott explains this in his commentary on Romans, the message of Romans. He writes, The wrath of God, then, is almost totally different from human anger. It does not mean that God loses His temper, flies into a rage, or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. The alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality in the moral conflict, and God is not neutral. On the contrary, His wrath is His holy hostility to evil, His refusal to condone it or come to terms with it, His just judgment upon it. And everything Stott is saying here is very important for us to remember and to reflect on. And notice the way Stott started there is he said, God's wrath is not like our anger. We know from James 1, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we have all been burned by somebody's anger. Perhaps somebody close to you in, in, in your life, a parent or a boss, has, has deeply wounded you by the way they, they used their anger and hurt you. Or perhaps you are, are keenly aware of the way you have hurt other people by your own anger. And so those experiences may come to mind when you think about God's wrath. And you may wonder, well, is, is that what God is like in His wrath? And Stott's point to us is he's saying, no, that's not God's wrath. God's wrath is a holy and a just and a perfect wrath. He is not quick to anger. We know from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Even in Psalm 2, our call to worship this morning, when it talks about the wrath of the Son being quickly kindled, that is against the kings of the world who would have known about His reign and who would have been given time to repent and were being called to repent then. Our God is slow to anger. He is not like us. And we have to remember, too, that God is wrathful precisely because He is holy, because He is just, and because He is loving. Think about it. If God did not oppose sin and rebellion and evil by His wrath, then He would not be holy or just. He'd be like us, just shrugging His shoulders at evil and saying, well, what are you going to do? I'm going to change the channel and watch something else on TV now. And if, if He didn't oppose sin by His wrath, He would not be loving because sin is destroying us. We are destroying ourselves and one another through our sin and our rebellion. And for God to do nothing, that would not be loving. And so in a cultural moment, when as we look around in the world and we think about the experiences of the past year and past couple of years, we are deeply confronted by injustice and evil and sin in our society on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we have examples of the way that human anger falls short of making things better. Often it just makes things worse. And so we need a right understanding of God's wrath. We need to know what is God doing about what's wrong in the world and about what's wrong in us. Because as we will see, He is the only one who can deal with what's wrong without making everything worse. And He is the only one who can put things right while actually healing the heart of the problem and not just covering stuff up. And so let's see this as we turn to the text and see first in Romans 1, 18 through 20 that we suppress the truth. 
And that this is the, the first and the, the ultimate reason then why God's wrath opposes us in our rebellion. And so notice as you look at verse 18, it starts with the word for, which was the same word that began verse 16. Again, Paul is building an argument. These verses are connected to what he just said. And that's important for us to remember because whenever we think about these verses about God's wrath, sometimes we may think, see, this is the part about Christianity that I'm most ashamed of. You may have thought of this last week when we were asked the question, what about Christianity are you most ashamed of? But it's important to see that this verse begins with four. It's connecting back to what's already come because this is not where Paul starts. He doesn't start with wrath. He started with God's grace to him that called him to be an apostle. He started with the fact that he was a debtor of the gospel, that he was therefore viewing his life as one of service to all those who did not yet know of Jesus. He wanted to proclaim the gospel to them. He wanted to be built up in his relationship with the Romans. He starts there with God's grace, with his relationship with the Romans, and then he talks about the gospel and its power for salvation, and then he comes here to our need for Jesus to the reason for God's wrath being against us in our rebellion. And so he didn't start there. There's more to the story that has to come first before you can understand God's wrath. And what we see then, as Paul is going to explain through God's wrath, our need for the gospel, we see as he talks about it here as being revealed from heaven, that he's first of all saying God's wrath is personal and it's active. It is not just the laws of the universe, you know, cause and effect. If you do this, then this will happen. It's not an impersonal force, but it is God's wrath from heaven, and it's being revealed. It's active. It is the way God judges and deals with sin through consequences or perhaps through government when it is acting rightly, as Paul would say in Romans 13. But Paul's point um, as well, we have to remember, is that it's not yet total. And we know this from our experience. We know that often like Job, we look around in the world and we think, well, why are the wicked prospering? And why are the righteous suffering? We know that God's wrath has not yet come in full because also in places like 1 Thessalonians 1.10 or the book of Revelation, we know the day of God's wrath when Christ will return to put all things to right and for the final judgment, that will be the day when God's wrath is poured out in full. But Paul is saying that it is at work now in part. And it, and it opposes our rebellion. And we notice in particular what God's wrath is against. As I just said, it opposes our rebellion. If you look at the text, it is not against humanity, but God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that is very important for us because when we talk about God's wrath, we can feel like God's wrath is sort of an anti-humanity, not good, doctrine. But remember that God's wrath is not humanity. It is anti-sin. And sin is anti-humanity. So for God to oppose ungodliness and unrighteousness, this is just and good and holy and loving of Him to do. And these terms Paul uses here, ungodliness refers to the way our sin is against God. It's the Godward aspect of our sin. We are rebelling against our Creator who loves us and who made us. And then the unrighteousness part is our sin against others. And, and that is, is referring to sort of the antithesis of Proverbs. Proverbs, remember, was all about growing in righteousness and justice and equity. And here, unrighteousness refers to the way that we mistreat others. We elevate ourselves and we dehumanize them. And Paul is saying that is what God's wrath is opposed to. 
And then Paul continues, though, and he says that by our unrighteousness, by the way we sin against others, we are suppressing the truth. And at this point, the Gentiles might have asked, well, how, Paul? You're talking to us? What truth are you talking about from God that we've suppressed? We're not like the Jews. We didn't have the law. We didn't have the Old Testament. So how are we suppressing the truth through our unrighteousness? And Paul goes on then, and he explains in verse 19, he says, well, what can be known about God is plain to them. And again, if they thought, well, it doesn't seem so plain, what are you talking about, Paul? He then goes on and he says, because God has shown it to them. Again, notice how God is personal and active in these things. What Paul is saying is that God had made it plain to the Gentiles, to all people, through creation, that He exists. This is called natural revelation. It is distinct from special revelation, God's revealed Word to us in, in Scripture and, and through the person of Christ and His work. But Paul here is he's drawing on Psalm 8 and Psalm 19 and other places like that in Scripture that talk about creation being God's handiwork and revealing who God is, what He is like. It's, it's the way it is with the work of any artist. When an artist fashions something, it reveals something about their character and what they value and who they are as a person. And Paul is saying that creation reveals something about God, that God actively uses creation to reveal something about Him. And this knowledge of God that Paul is talking about, notice it focuses on God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, that God has made all things. We recognize that things are contingent. We wonder, where did, where did this come from? Well, Paul's saying that points to the fact that God, by His eternal power, brought all things into existence. And then His divine nature, and that is just broadly saying God's characteristics. We see characteristics of God reflected in the order of the world, in the beauty of the world. These are, as some apologists would put it, signals of transcendence. We look at the world and we are moved by it. We sometimes use worshipful language, don't we? When we behold creation, even in doing our science, we talk about wonder and awe, and we look at a sunset and we say, that's awesome. And that's worshipful language because we're being clued into the creation around us, this beautiful spectacle, is pointing beyond itself to the God who is revealing Himself through it. And so Paul is saying then that this is knowledge of God as Creator. It is not saving knowledge, but it is real knowledge. The Gospel is not written in the stars. The Gospel is written in God's Word. And yet the heavens do declare the glory of God. There is true knowledge of God revealed in His creation. And you can think of that as well just in the experience that Psalm 8 talks about. That when you look at the stars, for example, or perhaps with, with the scientific advances we have today, you look at a cell under a microscope. You look at creation at its largest and at its smallest, and you wonder to yourself with the psalmist, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him, O Lord? And so Paul is saying that these things, they point us outside of ourselves and to the Lord. And yet Paul is saying that that truth, that we are not the center of the universe, that we do not create our own reality, that we are small and yet we seem to be uniquely cared for. Paul's saying we suppress that truth. We hold it back from leading us to a knowledge, a fuller knowledge of God. 
and we suppress it through our unrighteousness, through the ways we live as if we are, in fact, the center of the universe. And so Leon Morris, in his commentary on Romans, a 20th century New Testament scholar, he helps us understand this well. He, he writes, Paul is not here speaking of a saving knowledge of God. The context is concerned with the condemnation of the Gentile world, not its salvation. Nobody can say, I didn't know. Our condemnation in each case lies in the fact that we have sinned against the light we have, not against the light we have never received. Thus, though the Gentiles did not receive the full revelation in the law of the Old Testament, they did receive enough illumination to know what was right, and they followed the wrong. And so the question for us as we reflect on that, we reflect on the fact that, that Paul is saying here that no one has an excuse for their sin. The Gentiles, though they didn't have the Old Testament, God revealed His existence to them and His characteristics, some of them to them, through creation, and therefore it, that takes away any excuse they'd have for their sin. We need to ask ourselves that question. We need to ask, what excuses do you try to make for your sin? And that's an important question to ask because for a lot of us, we can be gung-ho about the truth of Christianity and we can say, I'm not suppressing the truth. You know, I, I, I want more people to know the truth. But we need to remember, as God's people who have His Word, we are with even less excuse when we sin because we do have natural and special revelation. And so what excuses do you try to make when you sin? And then how are your excuses suppressing the truth that you know? You see, the devastating thing about our excuses is that when we make them over and over, eventually we believe them. Eventually, it changes the way we see our sin. It changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way we see the Lord. You know, if we make excuses for our sin, we can eventually start to view the Lord as maybe He's holding out on us. Maybe God's Word didn't really say, I shouldn't do this. And even just on a practical level, I think about in my own life, I'm finishing up my semester in seminary. It's crunch time, as I affectionately call it. I've got a lot to do, and I can easily become irritable. And right there, you can already sense, I'm almost making an excuse there. But, but what will happen sometimes, say my wife calls me on and says, hey, you're being really, really grouchy and irritable, and I need you, and, and our son needs you. If I say, I'm really sorry, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just busy, I'm just very busy right now, or I haven't had my coffee, I'm sorry. Those are excuses. That's suppressing the truth. No, I'm misprioritized. I'm prioritizing my, my work or my grades above my calling in God, which I know He's made clear. I'm to love my wife and give myself for her as Christ gave Himself for the church. But my excuse, I'm just busy, suppresses that truth. It suppresses that truth. It blinds me to the truth that God has given me to draw me near to Him and to draw me near to others in loving relationship. And so the excuses we make for our sin, they have a cost. And so we want to reflect on that as we consider these words. And we need to remember, we don't get to pick and choose from God's truth. We don't get to, you know, emphasize and want everybody else to know the truth that, that we really like and that promotes our cause that we, we care about. But then ignore or suppress the truths that are inconvenient to us because they expose something about us. In fact, when we try to do that, we're trying to play God and pick and choose what will be true for us. This is my truth and that one, not so much. And when we get there, we, we go exactly where Paul goes next in the text. In verses 21 through 23, we're going to see that we often then, in playing God, we try to replace Him 
with our own wisdom and our own worship. And as we turn back to the text and you look at verse 21, you see that Paul says, so they've, they've had this knowledge of God that God is revealing to them through creation, but although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but instead became futile in their thinking. And so Paul is saying that we have this knowledge, but we don't treat God like God. We treat Him you know, like a magic eight ball. We commodify and we only turn to him when things are really bad or we, we want to make sure, you know, something goes well for us or for our group. And often instead, we will replace him with our own gods, whether it's ourselves, our career, our goals. But we will not give him thanks. Our gratitude withers away. We become entitled. And we use everything for our own glory instead of honoring or glorifying him. And it's not just Paul is saying that we look at creation like you might go to an art museum and you behold this great work of art and you know it's a great work of art, but you just, you just don't get it. You kind of scratch your head and walk away and say, I, I didn't get the point. Paul is saying it's worse than that. What he's talking about here is imagine that you go into that art museum and the artist who painted that masterpiece is standing right there telling people about how he made it, telling them what it all means, and you loudly say, oh, you know, this looks like it was made by so-and-so who's not that artist, and you start offering your own interpretation. That would be absurd. But Paul's saying that's what we do. We live in God's world that God is using to point us to Him, and we attribute it to something else whether it's a, a God of our own making or to science or to ourselves, we attribute it to something else and we give it its own meaning or we try to, is what Paul is saying. And then he says, this makes us futile in our thinking and it darkens our hearts. In other words, this changes us. Us ignoring God, not treating Him as God, it changes us. We can think, well, God, you know, God doesn't change, so me not worshiping Him, What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is what it's doing to you. And that's Paul's point. He's saying trying to replace God is the height of futility. It, it, it is the height of absurdity. Because what we are trying to do is impossible. We are trying to take a world that is pointing to its creator and we're trying to bend it in so it points to or at least revolves around ourselves. And this is Genesis 3. As Genesis 3 reminds us, you know, as the, the serpent whispers low to Eve, you know, you can be God. You know, forget about the fact that you were made in His image to be in relationship with Him. You, God's holding out on you. You can be God. Eat this fruit. Get wisdom for yourself. Put yourself in His place. And the thing is, when it doesn't work, we just keep trying. When we try to bend the world around us and break free from our limitations, and we get exhausted, we get angry, we get anxious, or we get just, just burned out and depressed. So often, because our hearts are darkened in that, we don't see it. And we just keep trying the same thing over and over again. It's like we're running on a treadmill in the dark. We're running as fast as we can, but we don't realize we're getting nowhere. Because again, we're trying the impossible. We're taking God's world and trying to make it about ourselves. But Paul then says, the worst still is that in verse 22, we believe our own hype. We claim to be wise in doing this, but we become fools. And so often when our sin doesn't work the first time, rather than admitting that we're wrong and running to Jesus, often what we do, and especially if you're not a Christian, this is how we live. We just devote ourselves to becoming more efficient and more effective with our sin, 
or with hiding it or with getting away with it and trying to rub off the consequences of our rebellion against God and of the way we break that relationship. If you worship money, for example, and your life is consumed with stress about money, when you try to fix that on your own, often what you try to do is think, I just got to figure out how can I make more? Or you can go the other end and say, I just got to budget better and manage it better. And either way, it pushes you further into this service and worship of money. And it produces more anxiety, not less. Or if, if you know, for you, your idol is work, you can turn to job hacks and think, how can I, I level up my productivity? How can I get more done better, faster, more coffee, less sleep, you know, more, more multitasking? Just got to push up productivity. Or you go the other end and say, I just got to get away from work and go on a vacation. Then you come back and you're just as tired because you're, you're futilely trying to solve your problem with this idol. And if we worship ourselves, which is often beneath all those other idols, is worship of self. We can think, well, I just, I just need to boost my self-esteem here, or I just need to treat myself here. But you come on the other side of that, and you still feel frustrated with yourself. You still feel like you're lacking. And so Paul is saying the wisdom we have in our own eyes, the ways we try to deal with our own brokenness, often just pushes us, and not just often, but always pushes us further into that. And we become, as he says, fools. And his point then is that this is the costliness of rejecting God, of rebelling against Him. It is the cost of our sin. It's what we gave up in Genesis 3. Because if you remember, in Genesis 1 and 2, God made us in His image. He made us to be in relationship with Him and to care for His creation in all aspects. This is what Psalm 8 tells us, that God has crowned us with glory. His glory is above the heavens, but then He makes us and crowns us with glory, puts us in a unique relationship with Himself and with His world. If you go and you flip to Genesis 1.26, you can see the origins of this. Moses writes in Genesis 1 there, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now notice, look back then at Romans 1, 23, and notice how Paul is saying that we flip this upside down. In Genesis, God created us in His image, in His likeness, to be in relationship with Him and to be His faithful stewards over His creation. But then in Romans 1, 23, Paul says, we exchange the glory of the immortal God, which is one, living for His glory, and two, recognizing that as His image bearers, as Psalm 8 says, being crowned with His glory, that's what we had. That was the calling we had. But Paul is saying, we exchange that, we push that aside, and instead, we pursue images or likenesses resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's the exact terms that we saw in Genesis 1.26. We flip the whole thing upside down and we think we're playing God. We think we're elevating ourselves. We think we're devoted to ourselves by, by buying the satanic and serpentine lie of you can be God. But in reality, what Paul is saying we're doing is we're destroying ourselves. We are not being lifted up. We are not being set free. We are being pushed down and broken and dehumanized by our sin. This is actually diagnosed really well in Pixar's recent movie, Soul. The, the lost souls you see in some of those scenes where these people get folded in on themselves with these obsessions. And you know that movie was very perceptive with its diagnosis, but it, 
the cure it proposed felt lackluster because it didn't have this image of the calling that God made us for, to be in His image, to be in the glorious relationship with Him. And so Paul is taking his time here to expose the lies that we tell ourselves, to expose the, 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 the cost of this exchange that's beneath every sin we ever commit, to help us see how, how costly this is, to then help us see how much we need Jesus. And G.K. Beale, he, a New Testament scholar who actually just became a professor at RTS in Texas, he, in his book, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry, he ties this up really well for us. He gives this principle. He says, we resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. And then he goes on. He says, all of us are imitators, and there is no neutrality. We should disabuse ourselves of the notion that we can be spiritually neutral. We are either becoming conformed to an idol of the world or to God. Some might think that it is possible to exist in a mode of spiritual neutrality in their Christian lives. But when God's people think this way and act accordingly, in reality, they become subtly conformed to the world instead of to God. And so the question for us as we reflect on what Beale is saying, as he is tying up the truths that we just considered in Romans 1, the question we need to ask is, how have you changed in this past year? This is a question that's worth you pondering on your own, but also um, ask somebody you trust this question too. Ask them, how have I changed in the past year? And then you have to follow that up with a related question. What then does that reveal about your worship? Because it can reveal all sorts of things. It can reveal perhaps that you are worshiping things other than the Lord way more than you want to admit. It can also reveal that perhaps you're, you're not as, as committed to worship as you think you are, and that you, you've begun to treat it casually. This is, this is a common occurrence for, for us during, during the pandemic, where worship is online as it is right now. We can you know, sometimes push it off because it, it's online and it's easy to, to brush aside, but that has a cost. And you'll see it in whether, are you growing? Are you growing like Christ? Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Or, or are you not? Are, are you exchanging it for something else? And, and what damaging effect is that something else having on you? Because you can't believe the lie that there's no cost and that it's not doing anything to you. And so we want to celebrate the fruit that we see and celebrate the way God has been good to us in worship this past year and to celebrate the ways we've grown. But we also want to see how our pride has led us to exchange the glory of the immortal God for something less than that, something that is distorting us and destroying us. And as you reflect on that question, if you feel discouraged by that, as you're confronted with the costliness of your sin, remember why Paul brought all this up. Remember, this wasn't where he started. He's explaining to us why we need Jesus. When he talks about God's wrath, that should clue us in. If God is by his wrath opposed to our sin, that shows us our sin's a big deal, way bigger deal than we recognize. But God knows that it's a big deal perfectly. And that is why the Father sent the Son, and the Son came, and He died, and He rose again. And now the Father and the Son together send the Spirit to change us, to draw us out of our sin, to draw us out of our rebellion, out of our lies, out of our hype, out of our folly and futility, and to break the cycle of our idolatry and our, our attempt to replace God in His creation. 
And the Spirit gives us eyes to see. To see not only the truth of God that He reveals through His creation, but see the truth of God that we have heard this morning. That we would not get lost in despair when we're confronted with our sin, but that we would meet the, the grace of our God to us in Christ. And we would worship and we would grow because of that. And so as we think about what Romans 1, 18-23 teaches us, that we need Jesus because we suppress the truth that God reveals and that we try to replace God with our own wisdom and our own worship, as we think about that, take heart. Remember the assurance of pardon. Remember, that's the capstone of Romans 3. That's what's coming on the heels of Paul saying, we are all united in our sinfulness. We're all united in our need for Jesus. And therefore, take heart. Receive Christ and let us worship Him together. Amen? Would you pray with me? Our Father, I thank you for this morning and the time we've had to study your word. Lord, these are heavy things. Lord, we, we often feel squeamish when, when we think about your wrath. and We, we don't know how to talk about it and, and we want to tiptoe around it. But Lord, we know with Paul, we, we, we need to recognize it because Lord, our sin is, is, is a big deal. Our rebellion, our attempts to play God, Lord, these are not neutral things. They are far more destructive than we can even realize. But you know that, Lord. You know that, and that's why you sent Jesus, and that's why you send even now the Spirit. And so help us to see that. Lord, pull us out of our idols. Expose those things that we might be healed by your grace to us in Christ alone. And would you grow us now, even in our time, to celebrate your goodness to us as our loving Father, as our reigning King, and as our indwelling Holy Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.